2006, February 8th. Today is going to be Lecture 24, The Realm of the Nebulae, which will begin in just a moment. And we'll begin today's uh, lecture. And of course, the, the, these podcasts are, I'm, are proving to be rather interesting. The technology is very simple, but who listens to them kind of surprises me. So I've got to give a little shout out to one of our listeners in South Australia, the University of Queensland who's been listening to our lectures here from us. Uh, wonder what I've, I've let a genie out of the bottle. That's all there is to it. Um, there's also another guy in the... In the uh, see, I think it's... Uh, I'm going to get it wrong, of course, and he'll send me an email. Tennessee Department of Transportation listens to us as well. So, you know, interesting new technology. Never know where, where it leads. Today's lecture, excuse me, today's lecture is entitled The Realm of the Nebulae. We're going to continue on the theme we began yesterday, this whole idea of how you measure distances in astronomy, how you use those to tell what the distribution of objects around us is to get an idea of what our, what our home looks like. And yesterday we saw how we got to the size of the Milky Way galaxy, how it grew from what looks like a, a white band of light across the sky Galileo in 1610 showed it was made up of, of uncountable numbers of, of tiny faint stars. And it's realized that simply the shape of it on the sky makes you realize that what we're doing is we're riding in the middle of a gigantic disk of stars. Like I told you, one of, my, one of my goals for this class is to make you look at the world a little differently, not because I'm trying to indoctrinate you in a particular way of thinking, but I want you to actually try to really see what the world looks like through having learned a bit about how it's put together. So now, can you actually go out on a summer's night and see the Milky Way and not actually try to imagine yourself in the middle of an immense disk of stars? If, if you actually start thinking, wow, I actually am in the middle of a big disk of stars, then I've done my job. But this actually was a hard thing to observe. It took almost 300 years from the time Galileo showed that the Milky Way was broken up into stars until Harlow Shapley showed how really big that galaxy, that Milky Way, was and where the sun's place was inside of it. We saw some of the historical development of that. We're now going to take that story further and ask the question of what is the relationship of this giant system of stars, the Milky Way, to other nebulae in the sky. They were called nebulae because they looked like clouds. And so today we're going to talk about the realm of the nebulae. The key ideas today is I'm going to introduce the so-called spiral nebulae and the arguments, this is largely an historical overview, of what these spiral nebulae were. There were two competing hypotheses for these, which were not resolved until the early 20th century. The island universe hypothesis, which first came from Immanuel Kant that we saw yesterday in relation to the Milky Way, and the nebular hypothesis put forward by the French mathematician Pierre-Simon Laplace. Both of these made very specific predictions for how far away these things should be and how big they are. And the only way to resolve that is by actually measuring their distances. Now you can see that theme of distance coming back again. It's so crucial for being able to resolve this otherwise seemingly unresolvable question in science. So now we're going to look at, from a historical point of view, but again applying some of the, some of the things we've been talking about over the last few days, to travel how we went from identifying the spiral nebulae to beginning to understand what they were. We have to talk a little bit about Henrietta Leavitt's work on discovering the Cepheid period luminosity relationship and also the relationship for RLIRI stars. The Curtis Shapley debate in 1920, which was the, the sort of the last point at which these ideas were still unresolved, the difference between the nebular hypothesis and the, and the island universe hypothesis. And finally, the resolution of this whole argument by 
one of the greatest astronomers of the 20th century, a man named Edwin Powell Hubble, who discovered Cepheid variables in the Andromeda Nebula and showed, in fact, that it was an external galaxy like our own Milky Way. It's a very interesting story. The reason I decided to tell it rather than just simply diving into the astrophysics stuff is because it really illustrates the difficulty of this problem. It wasn't obvious how to interpret what we were seeing in the sky, and it took us nearly three centuries to actually come to the right answer. It's a tremendous story. So last time we talked about the Milky Way discovery with Galileo. Now, once Galileo had started applying the use of the telescope to looking at the sky, everybody else who was interested began to build their own telescopes. It began the tradition of using telescopes in astronomy as one of our most powerful tools. Throughout the centuries following Galileo, people built larger and larger telescopes. And the real golden age, sort of a breakthrough in around the beginning of Sort of the, uh, about the uh, 1750s on, there was a real breakthrough in technology. It started with Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton first de developed the first simple reflecting telescope. And it was realized very quickly that you could build a mirror and support it from the back much more easily than you could build gigantic lenses made out of glass. In fact, you could build pretty crude mirrors and get a pretty big light bucket. The idea was to collect enough light so you can see faint things. By the year 1850, even wealthy amateurs were building telescopes in the four to six foot diameter range. Now, at this time, astronomy was really not a university um, practice like we think of it today. Scientists are employed by universities or government laboratories. We use gigantic facilities which are paid for by, in large measure by taxpayer dollars or very, very wealthy private donors. Throughout most of the 18th and 19th century, a lot of science was kind of a gentlemanly art, and, and the man part was certainly part of it. There were very few women who did this. The biggest exception was Carolyn Herschel. They also tended to be wealthy or have wealthy friends who paid for their toys. And one of these was a man by the name of William Parsons, who was the third Earl of Ross. He was one of those wealthy landovers in Ireland, actually in Northern Ireland. He lived in a place called Parsonstown. Um, in Ireland, and built for himself a 72-inch telescope. That's a six-foot diameter mirror. Now, it's not going to be like the 72-inch telescopes we use today, where we have very large glass mirrors with thin vacuum-deposited coatings of aluminum on it. This actually was a very large metal mirror, which was then polished very nicely on the surface and covered with a material called speculum. As its name implies, it's an alloy used, among other things, to make looking glasses. You could build these things very large, but it was very difficult to support them. This is actually a reconstruction of Parsons' telescope. It's, still it's been recently rebuilt by the, by the family of, of, of the Earl of Ross. Um, it's got a huge brick structure. You can see it's actually a little bit ornate. Um, it could only swing north-south. You couldn't actually swing it around in azimuth. You could only swing it in altitude. And so what you did with a telescope like this is you stood up near the top. The eyepiece was up near the top. The, the mirror was down at the bottom. It was so heavy, you basically pivoted it by its mirror. Um, it's very similar for those of you who may have seen amateur, or amateur astronomy. You'll run into at some point something called a Dobsonian mount. It's very similar to this. So this was actually swung into position to look at different parts of the sky using a, a system of weights, uh, ropes and pulleys and counterweights to try to balance things. So we had Irish workmen on his, on his estate help him do this, and he would stand up there and watch the sky turn through the eyepiece and map the sky that way by watching what time it was and knowing the angle. This is really really hardcore stuff. If any of you have ever been to Ireland, you know that Ireland's called the Emerald Isle because it rains most of the time. So this was a very patient man. 
However, his telescope at 72 inches had unprecedented light gathering power and he, he did a beautiful job of building it, gave beautiful images. And what he found was, with some of these fuzzy nebulae, which had originally been discovered by William and Carolyn Herschel, when looked at with the 72-inch Parsonstown Leviathan, suddenly broke into structure. They actually weren't just simply undifferentiated blobs of light. And a few of them, and these are actually sketches from Ross's notebook here in digital form, they seem to have a spiral pattern to them. You can see they tend to have a bright center, which he showed as dark in these charcoal drawings. And then there were sort of these pinwheel wisps of light that came out from inside of the middle here. In some cases, you'd see them doubled. This object is known rather fancifully as the Whirlpool Nebula. It's actually a double galaxy up in the constellation of Canis Venatici. This is another example of these spiral nebulae. What you're seeing is a disk of light, a disk, well, possibly of stars or something else. They didn't really know at the time. And there's a spiral pattern, a kind of a pinwheel pattern in the disk. Sometimes you saw edge-on systems that were long and thin. They almost looked like big lenses, but they were bisected by very, very dark lanes inside of them, like dark bands, like something was cutting the light in half and blocking the light. The same kind of thing you see when you look up at the Milky Way. You can see there's dark bands obscuring the background. However, no matter how big the telescope was, these things never resolved into individual stars. They always appeared as fuzzy, glowing patches. They didn't break into millions or billions of stars. Because they were looking like glowing clouds of light, they were called nebulae, which comes from the Latin word for a cloud. Now, Herschel had identified with the smaller telescope a lot of these fuzzy, glowing patches called nebulae, but a number of them when he looked at them like these so-called spherical or round nebulae, when he looked at them with a better telescope, suddenly broke into many, many stars. The globular clusters were good examples of that. Hundreds of thousands of stars orbiting the Milky Way. Certain open clusters of stars also resolved themselves. So Herschel thought that if you got a better and better telescope, they would resolve into stars. The problem was Herschel also looked at a couple of nebulae that really were glowing clouds. In this case, fluorescing clouds of gas around hot stars. The Great Nebula in Orion is a star birth region. The ultraviolet light from the O and B stars just formed is causing the gas out of which they form to light up and fluoresce. It's a beautiful nebula down in the sword of Orion. If you ever get a clear night for the telescope sessions, it's one of our targets over these months. He also saw nebulae that looked almost like planets. They looked like disks and no stars. That's because they really are, plant they are disks of gas or bubbles of gas. They're planetary nebulae. So Herschel thought that all the nebulae would ultimately break into stars, but when he found certain of them that didn't break into stars, he somewhat despaired of this idea. He didn't realize he was looking at two physically different things. Parsons, despite his big telescope, could not break these into stars. So they were interesting. He cataloged a number of them across the sky, but no one knew what they were. They didn't know whether they were systems of stars or clouds of gas. And therein lies part of the problem. A lot of ideas about these things began to be, to be circulated once Parsons' work began to make its way out into, into the community. In the year 1845, the German uh, naturalist and explorer Alexander von Humboldt, Humboldt Forest, for example, in California, he was a great explorer of North America, South and Central America, was to revive Immanuel Kant's century-old idea of the island universe hypothesis for the Milky Way and the other what he called elliptical nebulae at the time and applied it to the spiral nebulae. In a book called Cosmos, 
Alexander von Humboldt revived and in fact regained the use of the word island universe in which he thought of the spiral nebulae were really other Milky Ways. They were other vast systems of stars like our own made up entirely of stars. The reason why even in the big telescopes you didn't see the stars is because they were so far away you would never be able to resolve the individual stars in them. It's quite a leap of imagination because he had no data to the contrary. In other words, these spiral nebulae were very, very distant and they were external to our own Milky Way. Now, he based this on what observations were present that were done by mostly by others. He was not himself an astronomer. And this very compelling idea of Immanuel Kant's, the idea that the Milky Way that we see is the bright feature across the sky. And, of course, Humboldt traveled in the South America and the Andes and saw this spectacular, breathtaking Milky Way down there, was... Even though we thought of it as everything, it really was just one of uncountable numbers of Milky Ways throughout a vast, infinite universe. It was a really very grand conception of the universe. So the big picture that comes out of the island universe hypothesis, the Milky Way is simply one of many Milky Ways spread throughout a vast, in fact, indeed, probably infinite universe. It's a very grand and immense way of viewing the universe. We've gone from... Ptolemy, who thought of the Earth as the center of the universe, all the way up to the time of Copernicus. Copernicus made the universe that much bigger by saying the stars were so far away, that's why we didn't see parallaxes. It was only in the 1830s that we measured parallaxes for the first time and knew how big the distance to stars really was. And here, in the same time, are people now expanding that essentially to infinity. It was an incredible um, intellectual feat. It really did begin to change the way people viewed the world. But it wasn't the only idea out there. Because after all, remember, they're dealing with the same observations, but it's a matter of interpretation. You have to know some way to distinguish between these interpretations. The other idea that became prevalent in the mid-1800s and was brought up by a number of people was to revive an idea from the late 18th century, just before the French Revolution, from the French mathematician Pierre-Simon Laplace. Now, Laplace was trying to describe a theory for the formation of our solar system from a swirling disk of gas torn off the sun and the planets condensing out of that cooling gas. It was actually a tremendously astute guess into the actual mechanism that is, in fact, the way our solar system was born. He called it the nebular hypothesis, the idea that the stars were surrounded by this vast nebula of gas and that the planets condense out of that nebula and then it's dispersed by the sunlight. So people took the Laplacian idea, which was originally applied to the formation of planetary systems around stars, and said, look, if Laplace's idea is right, then these spiral disks, which do not differentiate into stars, are what we would expect to see if we were to catch a solar system in formation. And so they hypothesized that the spiral nebulae, in fact, are not made of stars, The reason why they don't resolve into stars when you look at them in the giant telescopes is because they are, in fact, swirling clouds of gas. There's only a star buried in the middle, which we can't see distinctly because it's still forming. That's why the middles are fuzzy and not star-like, for the most part. And that these are forming solar systems. If that's true, then these objects, because they must be of solar system size, not Milky Way size, must be inside of our galaxy. They're internal to our galaxy, and they're simply other forming star systems. They're nearby. The problem is we don't know what their distances are. And they look like what we would expect from the Laplacian theory to see forming solar systems. 
After all, if you walk into a forest on an afternoon, you expect to see both young trees and old trees. So we expect as we look deeper into space, we're going to catch solar systems being born. So it's a compelling idea. The big picture, however, that comes out of this is also a very compelling idea, is that even though Copernicus removed us from the center of the solar system, the Milky Way we see around us is the entire universe. It is all there is. And all those little spiral glowing nebulae are simply clouds of gas within our own Milky Way, beyond the edge of the Milky Way, if it has an edge at all, is simply infinite darkness of space. So that's the idea behind the nebular hypothesis. One of its implications is the Milky Way, what we see in that band of light in the sky, is the whole universe, and the universe is simply a vast system of stars. So how do you figure, how do you distinguish between these two models? You can argue on philosophical grounds as much as you want, but philosophical arguments don't mean squat if you can't solve the basic scientific question at the heart of this. And the basic scientific question basically boils down to, you guessed it, finding distances. The distinction between the nebular hypothesis and the island universe hypothesis basically hinges on are these nearby structures within the boundary of the Milky Way or are they immense star systems beyond our Milky Way and the same size as that Milky Way? Put a different way, we have to answer two different questions to address this. The first is, how big is the Milky Way itself? Is it big enough to encompass those visible spiral nebulae? And second, how far away are the spiral nebulae themselves? So there's two different problems here. Well, the first of these we saw the resolution of yesterday using the work of Harlow Shapley. But that work was completed nearly a century after the basic problem was posed because of the technical difficulties. How do we actually use this information to distinguish between these? Well, the island universe hypothesis says that the spiral nebulae are other Milky Ways, therefore they must be the size of the Milky Way. If they look small on the sky, it's because they're very, very far away. They're external to the Milky Way. So in order to prove that the island universe hypothesis is correct, you must measure the distance to the spiral nebulae and show that the distance to those nebulae is far greater than the apparent size and edge of the Milky Way. You've got to show they're both outside, and because they're very distant, they are also physically very large on the sky. The nebular hypothesis, the way you use distances to prove it, is show that the nebulae are close. In fact, they're nearer to us than the inferred edge of the Milky Way. And because they're close, their angular size, they are physically small. They fit inside the Milky Way. And in fact, they're of order the size you expect for large forming solar systems. They're just on their way to collapse. So there's the issue, basically. You can distinguish between these two ideas, not by say-so or rhetoric or philosophical considerations or whatever. You can resolve the issue by measuring the distances to the spiral nebulae, measuring the size of the Milky Way, and comparing those size scales. That's it. Well, okay, that's easily said. It was really hard. <laughs> now, how do we measure distances? Well, it turns out the real hero in this story is the person who didn't solve the problem but provided the essential tool, and that's Henrietta Swan Leavitt. She was one of Pickering's computers at Harvard. She was one of the women that were hired to analyze the vast body of data that Pickering was collecting on the, on the nature of the stars. One of the things that Harvard did was map the entire sky. You can't see the entire sky from Boston. It may be the center of the universe, but you can still only see half the sky. You have to go down to the southern hemisphere. They erected a telescope outside, um, I think it was Arequipa in Peru. 
and mapped out and photographed the southern sky the same way as they did from the northern telescopes at Harvard College Observatory in Cambridge. Now, one of the, when you're in the southern sky, there, in addition to the Milky Way, there are two very bright glowing clouds of, ga- clouds of light that you can see away from the Milky Way. They were first observed by a European, or at least certainly first cataloged by a European, Ferdinand Magellan. He probably wasn't really the first person to have seen them, but we call them in his honor the Magellanic Clouds. The Magellanic Clouds are, when you photograph them, seen to break into systems of stars. They look like star clusters. In fact, we now understand them to be nearby satellite galaxies of our own Milky Way. But at the time, no one knew that. They simply were very bright, very rich star clusters. When you photograph them, you can see the individual stars, and they photograph them repeatedly night after night. And one of Henrietta Leavitt's jobs was to go through that series of photographs taken in time and find the stars that ver- find the variable stars. This was very interesting because the variable stars, since these clouds are at the same distance, all the stars within the cloud are at the, the clouds are at the same distance then the differences in brightness among those variables, in fact, is, represents true differences in luminosity. So this was a way of, of estimating the, lum- the relative luminosities of these variable stars without having to actually know the distance to the larger small Magellanic cloud. By 1912, this study had actually paid off, and she found a class of pulsating variable stars, which seemed to be somewhat similar to the well-known R.R. Lyrae variables, but had longer periods, And lo and behold, she noticed that those with the short periods were fainter than those with long periods. And in fact, if you plotted the mean brightness of the star as a function of its period of variation, you could fit a perfectly straight line through it. She basically discovered the period-luminosity relationship for for Cepheids. Now, she, however, she couldn't actually make it a period luminosity relation that was actually calibrated in terms of pure luminosities because the one piece of information she did not have was the distance to the large and small Magellanic clouds. Without the distance, she couldn't estimate the luminosity. All she knew was that the relative differences in brightness reflected differences in luminosity because they were the same distance away. So this was it. This was, this was the key. This was the thing that opened up the door to cosmic distances. In the curious way in which Harvard worked, Pickering prevented Levitt from following up this work to actually do the luminosity calibration. The reason being is that she was not a scientist, in quote, she was a computer. Her job was to analyze data, not interpret it. So this is partially not so much a, you know, oh, women aren't supposed to do that kind of prejudice. There may have been part of that, but really it was mostly a the PhDs do the intellectual work, the rest of you do the scut work. You don't actually go off on your own to do this. It was just simply the prejudice of the way it was working at the time. And this is unfortunate, although it turns out that, that while Pickering can seem unfair for this, he always made certain she got credit for all the work that she did in fact do. There was just this funny block about doing creative work yourself. We now actually, Levitt is, is considered again in that pantheon of the great astronomers of the 20th century, and in particular, she was the one who showed us the way to measure cosmic distances. The period luminosity relationship is the key to understanding the distances to galaxies and all the story that follows. Now, others, of course, picked up this work. In 1913, a year after Levitt's original paper on the, se- on the variables, he recognized that, oh, those are the same as these Delta Cephei stars. 
So if I know the delta Cephei stars inside of our own galaxy, and I can measure all these delta Cephei analog stars out in the large and small Magellanic clouds, I can now do the basic luminosity calibration, because I can take these nearby objects whose distance I think I know, compare it to the distant analogs, which are too far away from my other methods, and measure the distances to those objects, and calibrate this period luminosity relationship. So he did the first of the initial calibrations of luminosity. The other person who got involved in the work was the new, then new to Harvard College Observatory, Harlow Shapley, who after 1915 took Hertzsprung's work and refined the calibration that Hertzsprung found. It was pretty crude, but he decided to concentrate instead on the R.R. Lyrae stars, but he also applied it to the Cepheid stars. Now, the R.R. Lyrae part of that calibration, he very famously applied to get the distances to the globular clusters. But, but Harlow Shapley also was the person who refined the Cepheid period luminosity relationship, which is more useful because the Cepheids are supergiant stars and therefore visible a very, very long ways away. So that was the essential bit of work that was necessary. Now, shortly after this, this whole issue of the nebular hypothesis versus the island universe hypothesis kind of came to a head. People realized that there were two competing vastly different views of the universe and that needed to be discussed. And so in a series of, of debates, and one called the Great Debate of the year 1920, the National Academy of the Sciences sponsored a public debate on the scale of the universe, which has now come to be known as the Shapley-Curtis debate because of the two people who were the, the people arguing the different sides of the issue. On the side of the nebular hypothesis, which was considered by many to be the conventional way of looking at the universe, was Harlow Shapley from Harvard. He defended his idea of a very, very large galaxy, which we saw last time, and felt that the other spiral nebulae were nebulae within our own galaxy. He defended the so-called nebular hypothesis. The other person, now shown a little bit older than he was in 1920, was Haber Curtis, who was an astronomer at the Lick Observatory in California, where I actually did my PhD thesis many years later. He was defending the so-called Captine model. Remember, Jacobus Captine had a much smaller Milky Way based on star counts. And he then felt that this Milky Way was too small to enclose the nebulae, and there were other evidences that suggested that these spiral nebulae were, in fact, other Milky Ways, and therefore he was arguing, in effect, for the alternative idea of the island universe hypothesis. Going in, the scientific community was basically split along various lines. Some of those fault lines were actually geographic. The East Coast School was largely nebular hypothesis. The new West Coast School was largely the island universe hypothesis. But in reality, that's a vast oversimplification. There were people on all sides all over the place. This really boiled down to a series of battleground questions. First of these is, what is the size of the Milky Way? How big is the Milky Way system measured in various ways? And it became down to an argument over Captine star counts, which gave a small Milky Way, and Shapley's globular clusters, which gave a very, very large Milky Way, between about... Basically, the difference in size was about a factor of 10 between these two, as we saw yesterday. The second question is, what is the distance to the spiral nebulae? And the obvious place to look is to go to the biggest of the spiral nebulae on the sky, which is hopefully the nearest of them, and measure its distance, because you always start near and then work your way far. And the biggest of those spiral nebulae is the Andromeda Nebula. There they tried to do this by looking at so-called nova outbursts inside of, this, inside of the nebula. 
Second was a question of if the spiral nebulae are close by, we should see the internal motions, the swirling of the gas or its constituents around. And therefore, what is the motion of these objects? Either it's radial velocity away from us, maybe proper motion side to side on the sky like stars, or maybe they rotate so we can see what's called proper rotation. So the question really came down to a, a claim of the measurement of proper rotation in a couple of these spiral nebulae versus observations of very large radial velocities. This is the Andromeda Nebula. This is a modern, beautiful photograph of it. Um, shown up here, it's in the constellation of Andromeda. It's one of the objects in the winter sky. We should look this good through a telescope, but you've got to take a long photograph to see this. this. This and the Milky Way become now the battlegrounds of the debate. Shapley's arguments were as follows. He felt that the galaxy was at least 100 kiloparsecs across, based on his globular clusters, that there was a nova, appearance of a bright stellar outburst in the year 1885 in the Andromeda Nebula, that if we estimated the brightness of that nova compared to nova nearby, this placed the Andromeda Nebula approximately 10 kiloparsecs away. Now, now wait a minute, you say. Nova is a stellar phenomenon. What is this saying about the nebular hypothesis? Well, they actually modified the nebular hypothesis a bit. The nebular hypothesis applied here was not to formation of a single solar system, but the formation of a cluster of stars which would eventually condense into solar systems. They knew they had to be far enough away. These things were way bigger than any solar system. So they rationalized it by saying, oh, what we're seeing is the formation of a rich open cluster of stars. And we're just seeing the raw gas out of which that cluster will form. So this is the beginning of a little bit of double-think behind the nebular hypothesis that was making people very, very uncomfortable. However, back to the story, you look at the nova that occurred in, in, uh, in Andromeda, you compare it to other novae for which you think you know the distance, you do a luminosity distance, and you get a distance using nova of 10 kiloparsecs. 10 kiloparsecs is a smaller distance than the 100 kiloparsecs of the size of the galaxy. There, ergo, the Andromeda galaxy is in the Andromeda Nebula is internal to the Milky Way. Now, of course, it turned out that the nova turned out to be something different. Furthermore, the final piece of evidence that Shapley brought into play was Adrian van Manen at the Mount Wilson Observatory had measured one of these spiral nebulae called M101. It's a face-on spiral and claimed to see that it was actually rotating, that you could actually see that it had proper rotation. When you looked at it many years later, the whole configuration had changed an angle as if it was a pinwheel turning on the sky. If the object, if M101, was external to our own Milky Way, if it was hundreds or even millions of parsecs away, hundreds or millions of kiloparsecs away, then that kind of rotation would imply speeds at the outside of the pinwheel in excess of the speed of light. And in 1920, relativity theory was sufficiently well established that speeds above the speed of light were just absurd. And so Shapley argued that the observation of proper rotation in M101 proved it had to be close because if you put it far away, the speeds would be ridiculous. There was a problem, however, with von Manen's observation. Only von Manen could get the result. Nobody else could reproduce the proper rotation result. And von Manen wouldn't let anyone else touch his measuring engine. Turns out, I'll just sort of get, jump into the story, the measuring engine is still at Mount Wilson. It has been analyzed. In fact, the measuring engine was used incorrectly. And so von Manen was, in fact, observing an artifact of his measuring technique, not an actual rotation. But this was not understood until after von Manen's death. Curtis's arguments were that typical Novi and Andromeda gave it a distance of 150 kiloparsecs. 
This gave it a size of about 10 kiloparsecs, like Captain's Milky Way. Remember, Curtis was going to be arguing for a small Milky Way, and therefore was external. It's a pretty weak argument, but it's trying to use the same data in a different interpretive way. The second is that you see dark obscuring bands in those spiral nebulae that are viewed edge on. That's exactly what our own Milky Way looks like viewed from the inside. Ergo, this similarity of form must mean that these things are other Milky Ways. Finally, if you look at the radial velocity, the Doppler shift of the spiral nebulae, there's two rather interesting things about it. One is that most of them are moving away from us. Only a handful appear to be moving towards us. And when we do measure the radial velocity away from us, it's hundreds, and in a couple cases, thousands of kilometers per second. The total gravitational binding of the entire Milky Way is such that an object moving at a few hundred kilometers a second in the Captain model would be moving fast enough to break free of the gravity of the Milky Way. Therefore, if these things were internal, why are they all rushing away from us? And why are they all rushing away from us fast enough to escape from the gravity of the system? That's an absurdity. And that was the argument that Curtis used. His arguments all taken together, he thought, supported the idea that what we were seeing were vast Milky Ways like our own. The outcome of the debate was sadly inconclusive. Really, there was no resolution. It was one of those, it's almost like a presidential debate. You know, it doesn't really convince anyone going in or out. Shapley had the better arguments and was considered by many people to have won the debate on his debating style, but in the end, he turned out to be wrong on most of the main points. Curtis was right, but his arguments were extremely weak. He used the model of the Milky Way, which was demonstrably wrong, according to Shapley, and Shapley was right about that. But some of his other arguments about radial velocity and the Novi and M31 were uh, difficult at best. The issue is really preventing a conclusion. The reason why no one could resolve this issue is simply that nobody had a good distance to Andromeda. That Nova of 1885, the reason why Shapley thought it was so close is it wasn't a Nova, it was a supernova. It was a far brighter thing than he thought it was. So he was vastly underestimating its luminosity because he was comparing it to the wrong nearby object. The reason being that no one had seen a supernova in our galaxy since Johannes Kepler. So he had no nearby analogs. So he looked at a much fainter object. What a nova is is in fact a, an outburst from the surface of a white dwarf that's picked up a little excess gas from a neighbor, are much fainter than supernovae. He thought it was faint because it was intrinsically faint. In fact, the object he was looking at was vastly more luminous and further away. So he had the wrong, his distance luminosity indicator was just wrong. He had the wrong analog. But no one else could do any better. Even Curtis tried to use Novi and M31, but he ignored the super bright Nova of 1885. Right idea, but weak data. Furthermore, no one could reproduce von Manen's result, and as I mentioned before, ahead of time, von Manen's result was basically due to bad data. But you didn't know that at the time. It's always the problem in science. You always worry a little bit about a controversial data point. We often ask ourselves, is this right? Or, or have they, the observer just made a mistake. Usually it's the theoretical astronomers who don't want to trust the data and the observers who want to trust the data, but it, it's always an issue. It's always going to come up. 
So it requires someone to come in and end the debate by getting the definitive observations. And that fell to Edwin Powell Hubble, who in the year 1923, working with the new 100-inch telescope at Mount Wilson Observatory, was systematically photographing the, the Andromeda Nebula during par, as part of his work, doing much the same thing that had been done by Henrietta Leavitt at Harvard College and the astronomers to photograph the Magellanic Clouds. He was looking for novae, because that's what people thought were the way you were going to get the distance out there to Andromeda. However, one of his plates, he thought he saw a nova and realized, oh, that's not a nova, it's pulsating. Follow the pulsation, it's a variable, it's a Cepheid. Applied Shapley's period luminosity relationship to the measurement of the brightness of the Cepheid and derived a distance of 300 kiloparsecs. Further observations by 1925, he'd measured and discovered 10 Cepheid variables. If you're going to make one measurement, it's great, but if you can find 10 independent measurements, so much the better. Better estimates of the period luminosity relationship now gave a distance to Andromeda of 1,000 kiloparsecs, a million parsecs away. This is 10 times bigger than even the most generous of Shapley's um, size of the Milky Way, and so it had to be external. Yes, ma'am? Um, I was wondering, if it was actually just a nova, wouldn't they not be able to see the individual stars in it? You mean if, they, if what he saw was a nova? Right. Yeah, actually, they did begin to see individual stars in the new 100-inch telescope. Yeah, actually, I'll show you this picture. This will become clearer with this picture. There's the 100-inch Mel Wilson. This is the 1923 plate from the 6th of October. This is Hubble's original plate. He's got a little mark there, N for Nova, N for Nova, N for Nova. You could actually begin to see, see how it's a little waffly here? That's beginning to actually resolve the giants, the giants and supergiants, in Andromeda. So with really good photographs taken with the best telescopes, Andromeda really was beginning to break into stars. In fact, when we look at Andromeda with the Hubble Space Telescope, we see it break into individual stars. So wouldn't that prove that it's a Well, no, not really, because they didn't know what supernovae were yet. Because there were no examples of supernovae since Kepler. And it wasn't until people realized that the galaxies were external galaxies and saw the outbursts and realized how really luminous they were. That had to wait until the 1930s and 40s before people made that realization. So it's kind of an anachronism. I sort of jumped ahead a bit. So there you see, he says, Nova, and he says, no, wait a minute, variable, exclamation point. This is one of these exciting moments in science. It's when the world changed. Because this one observation showed Hubble that Andromeda was 300 kiloparsecs away. He then went on to identify other variables, and he understood that Andromeda was nearly a million parsecs away. Now, it turns out that Hubble got fooled. And the reason he got fooled is he picked up not Cepheids, but W. Virginis stars, which are actually fainter than Cepheids, and so he overestimated the distance to Andromeda by a whole bunch. But no matter, he got it right. The issue is resolved. The island universe hypothesis is correct. Andromeda is simply another Milky Way like our own. The evidence was accumulating. As, as the person back there said, wouldn't you see the individual stars? And the answer was, yeah. That was part of the evidence that was making people uncomfortable with the nebular hypothesis. Is In the old days, the old telescopes just showed you a glowing patch of light. But with the brand new 100-inch telescopes, modern photographic techniques, and very high-precision optics, all of a sudden you saw these, some of these, the nearest by, begin to break into stars. That in itself would have put it forward. So we call the Milky Way now the galaxy. Please don't flutter your notebooks. It's really loud up here. We call the Milky Way the galaxy. We now know that the spiral nebulae, we call them generically spiral galaxies. We understand them now to be distant Milky Way systems like our own, 
roughly of the same size. There are many tens of kiloparsecs across. We've corrected Shapley's overestimate of the size of the Milky Way. He thought we were 16 kiloparsecs from the center. We're really 8 kiloparsecs because he didn't take into account dust absorption. We know that our Milky Way is about 30 kiloparsecs across. Andromeda is 30 or 50 kiloparsecs across, depending on how you want to do the measurement, because they don't really have sharp edges, so it's kind of funny. And the typical distances should be measured in megaparsecs, in millions of parsecs. So we've gone from a view of the universe where the Milky Way is everything to the universe being a vast, amazingly big place in which all the spiral nebulae in the sky are other Milky Ways like our own. Now we'll begin in the next few lectures to explore what the consequences of that are and study these systems in detail. Okay.